everybody's looking so good. It's glad, I'm glad to be here. I hope you are as well. Uh, I tell you what, man, worship is so sweet. And I know it sounds really good. Not because we're really good, but I want to tell you guys, it's very rare you know, that I would do something like this. The Bible says to render honor unto whom honor is due. And I'm so grateful that we have a sound engineer up there. That can we just honor the fact that uh, he does such a great job running our sound. And I, I know he, he's probably melting inside because I'm even saying anything. But uh, I'm just so grateful for the, the servants, the, the first fruit kind of servants that the Lord has uh, lifted up and raised up around here. And so thank you guys all for whatever role you play in serving the body of Christ. If you need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hands. Uh, and so raise your hand. There's some guys standing around you. They're ready to give one to you. If everybody has one, that's great as well. So, all right, guys. I'm kind of waiting on my bam. You can try to throw it. Hi, soy. I'm taking that one to Branson, folks. Let's take our Bibles and turn in them to 1 John. We're going to get back into chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 6 through 13 today in a message called The Witness of God. And so with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord and, and let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for uh, assembling us here today. And we thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us so, so, uh, how we say, so passionately, Lord, so fervently. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to give ear to you today, that we'd have ears to hear. And Father, that as you teach us, God, that we respond to you in an appropriate manner. And for, Lord, for it's our heart to honor and to glorify you. And so we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we kind of fall back into the flow of, of 1 John, let's remember that to be born of God is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And every believer has a few distinct, shall we say, birthmarks that give way to the fact that they are God's children. And those indicators or those ingredients in the life of every believer are love for God, uh, love for God's people, and obedience to God's word. And the general sphere or, or domain of the child of God is, is one of victory. The one who is born of God, John assures us, overcomes the world. That system that stands in opposition to God, in hostility toward Jesus Christ. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The, the idea there of being an overcomer, being the victory is this, is that if God be for you, Paul would say, then who can be against you? Yeah, it's that, it's that sense of um, um, uh, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so with that, let's take and turn our attention back just a little bit to verse 5 of chapter 5 here in 1 John, where John says, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And it's with this mention where John identifies Jesus as the Son of God that he segues into this next little section for us. It's like the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? Look at verse 6. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to prepare you for the fact that we're going to get into the weeds a little bit today. 
uh, when it comes to verses 7 and 8. And some of you, it may bore. I'm just going to be honest. Others of you may find it fascinating. Uh, but I believe it necessary nonetheless. Having said that, I'm sure that you would agree that there's plenty to sift through right here in the very first verse we're looking at in verse 6. Let's look at it again. John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. Now, I just want to be completely transparent with you and let you know that there that the theories and thoughts behind exactly what John means when he says he who came by water and blood are many. And the truth is that no one can really say definitively simply because John doesn't tell us. He doesn't say this is he who came by water and by blood. And what I mean by that is this, and then proceed to expound on the statement. And so, though I'm sure the meaning wasn't, it lost, wasn't lost at all, on its original readers, we kind of are left and we kind of scratch our head a little bit and we go, what exactly, John, are you trying to say here? And I'm sure that some deductive reasoning will help us out, as, as you'll see. But one thing that we can be certain of is that John wasn't seeking to paint some sort of super ethereal image or uh, embed some kind of mystical meaning in the words. There is nothing in this letter that lends itself to that kind of interpretation. John has been nothing but plain and simple. Would you agree? We've talked about how matter-of-fact, how right and wrong John speaks in this letter, and there's just no reason to believe that he turned the corner with this single statement. Now, I think a good reminder for us right about now is a simple point that John's been careful to emphasize throughout this letter, and that is exactly who Jesus is in truth. John has had it in his heart to make sure that we know that Jesus was a real flesh and blood, man. He wasn't, and he was dealing with a sect of people known as the Gnostics in his day, and they were teaching that Jesus was essentially like an emanation, that he was a, he was a phantom. He kind of appeared as a man, but really there was no substance to him. When he walked, he uh, essentially hovered just above the ground. He, he didn't leave footprints at all, and if you were to try to put your hand on him, it might pass through him, these kinds of things. You remember how John began this letter? He said, that which was from the beginning, and he was speaking of the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. He said, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He says, listen, God became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's critical that we all be on the same page with regard to that. Guys, if we don't believe who Jesus is in truth, then we don't really believe in Jesus at all. You see, if I think that Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer, which is what Mormons believe, or if I believe that maybe you believe that Jesus is really Michael the archangel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, but then, you know, another person, or maybe I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. So if, if, if you believe He's the spirit brother of Lucifer and you believe He's Michael the archangel and, 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 and I believe He's the Son of God and, the, as I said, the, the brightness of His image and the express, or pardon me, the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, then we don't believe in the same Jesus at all. And so John has been careful to make sure that we're all talking about the same guy. Who is Jesus in truth? And here in verse 6, he tells us, look, he, the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ, 
came to us. And he came by water and he came by blood. He was not a spirit. He was not immaterial. He was a real physical flesh and blood human being. Now, as for this specific phrase, he who came by water and blood, guys, there are no small number of different thoughts on that. Uh, Some would say it's a reference to the sacraments, to the ceremonies that, uh, that we partake in. You know, when we are baptized or when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake of communion, and that Jesus comes to us in these ways. And, uh, you know, while there is a sense in which that may be true, John was not speaking in the present tense. He didn't say, and, and he comes to us. He said he, he, he spoke in the definitive past tense, and he came, you see, in this fashion. Now, others would say that it points to the water and the blood that flowed from the side of Jesus when there he was, and he was hanging upon the cross, and he had died, and the centurion or the Roman soldier wanted to make sure that he was dead. Remember, thrust the spear up into the side, and he pierced his side, and what spilled from the wound was, was water and blood. And I understand why people would maybe gravitate toward that, but I don't really understand how that speaks of how he came to us. Now, some would say that it speaks to the water from which he was born. You know, when a baby is born, the the water breaks, the child comes forth, and the blood points to his death upon the cross. And, you know, I I think there's some merit to that. I I, I could be persuaded in that direction. Um, But to me, as far as, as where I am currently, it seems most probable that what John had in mind was the waters of Jesus' baptism and the blood that he shed for us upon the cross. They were, you see, the bookends, if you will, of his ministry. Perhaps you recall, it was at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, the Father spoke out audibly from heaven concerning him, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Both the Father and the Spirit bearing witness to the Son. Jesus was baptized, brothers and sisters, you well know, not as a sign of repentance from his sin. He had no sin. His baptism was a way in which he would identify himself with sinful man. He came to us identifying with us uh, that he would stand in the gap on behalf of us. That is, he would lay down his life. We all know that baptism speaks of a laying down of your life and coming, you know, rising again in the newness of life. And this would be where his public ministry began with the waters of his baptism, his identification with sinful man. Now, his public ministry concluded at the cross when he laid down his life. And it wasn't because he had to. He had no sin. Death had no power over him at all. But he chose to identify with us, to pay the penalty of sin on behalf of us, that he might save us. And when he hung there upon the cross, you know, we're fresh from the Easter season and we remember that there it was, there he was about three o'clock in the afternoon and he cried out those words, it is finished or paid in full or uh, the work of redemption is complete is the idea there. And it was his blood that paid the price for our sins. It cleanses us of our sins. In Hebrews chapter nine, we read, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with 
greater and more, uh, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, and not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There was a popular teaching in John's day, and it's still held in our own day, uh, that Jesus wasn't really any different than any other good man, a good person, but that the Christ Spirit came upon him at his baptism, and it left him before he died upon the cross. But guys, you need to understand that if Jesus was no different than anyone else, and the Christ Spirit, the divine element, came upon him at his baptism and then left him before he died, well then plainly put, his death was no different than anyone else's and accomplishes nothing on our behalf. But what John is saying is, listen, Jesus did not have the Christ spirit. Jesus is the Christ. And he came to us. He identified with us from the beginning to the end. His death is our deliverance. He came by water and by blood. Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, says this. He says in the words, not by water only, but by water and blood, John changes from the preposition dia to en. Okay, so the word by is two different Greek words in each of those trans, or interpretations or translations, right? Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is locative of sphere. It locates the sphere, not in the sphere of water only, but in the sphere of the water and the blood. Dia, this word by, represents or presents the medium through which and in the sphere or the element in which Jesus Christ came to offer himself as the atonement for sin. So again, we're, we're talking about the bookends of his ministry. It was by or through the waters of his baptism that he came, that he revealed himself to us, identified with us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He began his ministry. And it was by his blood that he came and offered himself as the sacrifice, the atonement for sin. Are you with me? And we read here, and it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is true. Jesus said, however, when He, that is the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you of things to come. And notice this, this is so important. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God bears witness to the Son of God, to who Jesus is in truth. Again, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. You know, it's interesting. Some people seem to perceive the Holy Spirit as he's a, as if he's a bit of a, a self-promoter. You know, it's always Holy Spirit this. It's, it's Holy Spirit that. But you need to know that the Holy Spirit has no interest in drawing attention to himself. If you're truly tuned in to what the Holy Spirit has to say, it'll be more like this. 
Put your eyes upon Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your help. Jesus is your healer, you see. He is your strength. He is your sufficiency, your redeemer, your righteousness before God. Don't trust in your own strength. Look to, lean fully on Jesus. And what John is telling us here is that the life and the ministry of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, and the Spirit of God, they all point to, they all testify of the same thing. They're all in agreement regarding who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, okay, we want to we press on a little bit here. And this next little section, it needs some attention, okay? So let's dial in and be ready for it. So let's look together. He says here in verse 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, here's what you need to know. And guys, I could really play this up and put some dramatic pauses in here and get you sitting on the edge of your seat, but I prefer just to tell you plainly, there is a high, high probability that the Apostle John did not write the lion's share of what we just read. Now, here's what's not in dispute, beginning in verse 7. For there are three who bear witness. Stop right there. Now, look down at the second half of verse 8. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, we just spoke of that. That's what I was leading you to, and that's what I was sharing with you. The fact that the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they're all bearing witness to the same message concerning who Jesus is. You know, this business, though, of three bearing witness in heaven who are one and three on earth is highly, highly speculative. And I am personally persuaded that John did not write those words. In fact, is there anyone here reading an NIV today? Okay, there's a good handful of you. Uh, anyone here reading an, a, a New American Standard? Got no, oh, got, okay, we got one. We got one. How about uh, an ESV? Got one. How about an NLT? New Living Translation, a few of you. Well, then when I read through that, you went, what is he saying? Those words aren't even there in those translations, and for good reason. Now, if those words are there as you read them, like they are in, in, in my Bible, the New King James Version, or maybe you're reading a, an Old King James there's probably a footnote in your Bible. If you'll look to the margin, there's a little letter or a number there. And it tells you that the NU, which is a reference to the critical Greek text that many translators use, omits it, that section, and only four or five late Greek manuscripts even contain them. Now, you know what a manuscript is. It's a copy, right? Like back in the ancient day, they wouldn't just take a text to the, to the copier and run it off, print off another one. They would sit down and they would look at the, the text and they would handwrite a copy of it and that would become a manuscript. And the original language of the New Testament was written in Greek, okay, ancient Greek. 
And the vast, vast, vast majority of ancient Greek manuscripts do not contain the words starting with in heaven, there in verse 7, all the way up to on earth in verse 8. In fact, the earliest Greek manuscript in which these words appear is not until the 14th century. Um, Now, there is an 11th and 12th century manuscript in which they've been placed in the margin by someone else. And there are reasons for which we don't think that John himself wrote these words. One would be the fact, guys, there were no small amount of theological debates in the early church history debating, you know, in the first few hundred years of Christianity regarding the exact nature of the Trinity and the understanding of the Trinity. Yet in all of those debates, all of those early writings, no one ever once, no one ever once quoted this section of Scripture found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Now, don't you think that if John had wrote, there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, that would pretty much seal the deal. Why not quote it? Now, several quoted verse 6 and verse 8, the section that I pointed out to you that's, that's uh, not in question. Why skip that part in verse 7 and the first part of verse 8 too? Well, if it's such a clear, concise statement of the Trinity. And guys, this passage is not found in any other ancient translation. Syriac, Arabic, Ethiopian, uh, Nubian, Coptic. Gothic, Saitic, Armenian, Slovenian, how do you say, uh, uh, Slavonian? Now, it does appear in the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate, what's that? It just means common version. It was the common version that was translated out of the Greek into the Latin, but it appears at some point in the 4th, 5th century, some five, 600 years later, And so our question is, how did these words get here? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Could simply have been an overzealous scribe, you know, in seeing, because we do have in this passage the mention of of the Son, the Spirit, the witness of God and all that. And perhaps some overzealous scribe thought this would be a great place to add clarity regarding the nature of the Trinity Or it could be that someone added them in the margin at some point. And you know, how many of you put notes in your Bible? You write there, and there it is. But but you know, it's it's clear and it's 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 distinct what you've written versus what they've typed. But let's pretend everybody it's all handwritten from everyone all the time. And so there you are, you got a little note in your Bible and you've put it off to the side, and then someone else gets that copy, right? And they go, Well, I guess the previous scribe thought that. This was meant to be here, but didn't want to rewrite the entire manuscript. So thinking they belonged in the text, they add them. Now, if they're not in any ancient Greek manuscripts, and by the way, 
there are thousands and thousands of ancient Greek men. You're not like, it's not like the Bible was recorded out of, you know, half a dozen manuscripts. There are thousands, over 5,000 that we have uh, today. And if they're not in any of the ancient Greek manuscripts, why are these words in our Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. It all has to do with a Greek scholar by the name of Erasmus. And he produced a new, and it was an accurate edition of the ancient Greek Bible, and he did so in 1520. Now, he did not include these words. <coughs> Excuse me. He did not include these words, but when his contemporaries compared what he wrote to the Latin Vulgate, they chided him for not including They said, you left this out. He said, well, I couldn't find the words in any ancient Greek manuscript. He said, you find me one. And by the way, I should say that some people, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. They said, you left this out. He said, well, I couldn't find the words, not in even one ancient Greek manuscript. He said, you find me one Greek manuscript. You find me one Greek. Remember, that's the original language. He said, you find me one Greek manuscript that includes these words, and I will include them in my next edition. And what do you know? It wasn't long after that, a Greek manuscript surfaced that contained these words. It was not an ancient Greek manuscript. In fact, Erasmus was personally persuaded that they just produced it to trap him in his words. But since he had promised that he would add these words to his next edition if they produced one Greek manuscript that contained the words, that's exactly what he did. And in 1522... His new manuscript included the words, but he also added a footnote saying that he thought that the new Greek manuscript had just been written on purpose to embarrass him. And that manuscript's on display today. But flash forward, that manuscript, his new edition, became one of the Greek texts used to make your King James Bible. So, here are the words. Now, with that, there may be another question or two swirling in your mind. This is what I'm talking about. We're getting into weeds a little bit. Some of you are going, this is really interesting history. Others are like, would you please move on? I will in a minute. But with that, we've got to address a couple of things real quick because some of you may have another question swirling around in your mind. I mean, oh my goodness, if I can't rely on this, if I don't know if this was added and I didn't know or this was that and the other, I mean, should I fear the reliability of the New Testament? I mean, what else is going to come under scrutiny? I mean, is John 3, 16 really there? Did somebody add that? What about Romans 8, 28? What is it, you know, and all, the, and all of this. And what I was going to say earlier, and I'm just going to say no. And here's why, okay? You should realize that there are about 50 passages, 50 passages in your New Testament that have questions regarding the reliability of the text. Now, some of you are going, holy smokes, 50 passages? I mean, that seems like a lot. Well, it's not. In fact, it represents about one, if this makes you feel better, one one-thousandth of the text. One-tenth of one percent of your New Testament 
comes into question. And of those passages, guess how many of them draw into question any Christian doctrine or belief? Not one. Zero. Like this one. In other words, it's like this. Though we don't believe John wrote these words, it does not infringe in the slightest upon the doctrine of the Trinity whatsoever. The New Testament is replete with passages that demonstrate the distinct persons of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, yet working equally as one. And if you want to look at my notes later, or they're up online, I've, I've listed a bunch of them for you. You don't need this passage to point out the truth of the Trinity. I would challenge you today to fact check the media and see if the information they give you is accurate down to one-tenth of one percent of a margin of error. Now, again, I would say some people are like, well, with all of these different you know, manuscripts, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, is it possible then that there are more errors? The answer is no. And do you guys realize that the, actually the fact that there are so many manuscripts actually works in your favor as to the accuracy and the inerrancy of Scripture, not against it? Because if there, let's say there was only two. Let's say we had two ancient texts, and one said this, and the other said that. Now we're left to go, what do, which one do we, how do we know which one was? But if you have 5,556 that say the same exact thing, and two that vary, they stand out like a sore thumb. And so, so God, in his wisdom, you see how all this works. Now, <coughs> the problem that you need to realize that can come into the equation of, of your everyday um, goings-on is the fact that this kind of thing can do damage when someone adds to or takes away from the Word of God. And, and so let me give you an example. There you are, and you're trying to share. A Jehovah's Witness has knocked on your door, right? There they are. They're, we give them you know, props for their zeal and their desire to, to see people persuaded into what they believe, though what they believe is inaccurate. We could probably learn a lesson or two from their willingness to step out of their comfort zone and, and confront and challenge people. But here you are, and you're, you're trying to share with them. They've knocked on your door, and, and the Jehovah's Witness does not believe in the Trinity, Okay. And so, and so you're trying to share with them, you're trying to prove to them, you're trying to persuade them to the fact that the Trinity is, is true. And, and you take them to 1 John chapter 5, you read verses 7 and 8, and it says, you know, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, these three are one. And you look at them, and you smile, and you say, well, there you go, I think that pretty much settles the issue, doesn't it? But because you didn't know the questions that surrounded this text... But I'll guarantee you, by the time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, they have been thoroughly trained in the discrepancies of this particular passage. All right? And so there you are, and they know all about it. And they proceed to demonstrate how the passage doesn't even belong in the Bible. <clears throat> and you get to thinking, well, maybe the Trinity isn't true. 
I didn't realize that there were things added. Maybe some things were taken away. Maybe Jesus isn't God. Maybe it's just an addition or an invention of people who've tried to change the Bible throughout history. And maybe this person really has a point. Guys, this is just one reason why we are not to add to or take away from God's Word. Guys, God does not need our help. His Word is just fine the way He inspired it. More accurately, this should read, beginning in verse 7, For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. That is, they all converge on a single truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, the Savior of the world. Amen? All right, so now we can move on. And I need to. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. And he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Excuse me, a tickle in my throat. John says, look, we receive the testimony of man every day. How many of you realize you receive the testimony of man every day? I mean, there you are. The weatherman says, looks like rain today. So you scoop up an umbrella and out the door you go. You just receive the testimony of man, the witness of man. You're driving to work. Hypothetically, there you are, and and you hear on the radio, there's been an accident on 7th and Range Line, and there's no way through right now. It's completely blocked off. If you're headed in that direction, you need to reroute. And so what do you do? You you turn off, and you head toward 11th or 13th or 15th or 4th or whatever the case may be. Uh, You take a different direction. You receive the witness of man. And we'll so easily, so readily receive and trust the witness of man, which is really strange because mankind lies at the drop of a hat. You remember the whole news media reference? But people struggle with the witness of God, yet he speaks only truth. People are prone to believe man's witness about Jesus when they say things like, well, you know, he was a good man, he was a great teacher, he was a revolutionary. But he wasn't God. But they struggle with the outright, or they struggle with or outright reject the witness of God when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Guys, there's no more reliable witness than the witness of God. And the harsh reality is that when one refuses to believe God's witness, they're essentially accusing God of being a liar. Think about that. A deceiver. Someone whose word can't be trusted. I mean, here it is. God says in His word, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But this person says, you know, I don't think I will trust or believe in Jesus. I think I'm a pretty good person. I'll just kind of take my chances on that. Well, you're calling God a liar. You've rejected the testimony he's given of his son. Well, I want to believe, I just can't. I'm going to tell you something, that's even worse. 
I mean, can you imagine? Imagine me making a statement. Here I am, I make a statement, you know, whatever. It could be about anything, and someone says, you know, Jeff, I just can't believe you. Now, I want to believe you. In fact, I've tried to believe you, Jeff, for over the years, just over and over. I've tried to believe what you say. I just can't. What's he saying? He's saying that my integrity is so lacking. I am such a confirmed liar that though he would really like to try and believe me, he just can't find a shred of decency in me to grab onto. I mean, man, I'd really like to believe you. I just can't believe you. Imagine saying that to God. The Bible doesn't say try and believe. It simply says repent and believe. To not trust God is to make him a liar. Okay? Okay, John, what then is the testimony that God gives us that we need to believe concerning his son? Well, let's look at it and we'll wind down and wrap up beginning in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the essential message that God gives to man is this. Eternal life is his gift to us. But that gift is only realized, it's only laid hold of, it's only apprehended in his son, Jesus Christ. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Listen. Life is not found in being a Baptist. It's not found in being a Methodist. It's not found in going to Calvary Chapel of Joplin or any other place. It's not about being baptized. It's not about church membership. It's not about any other church ritual. The question is, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Ladies and gentlemen, it is that simple. It is that clear cut. It is that black and white. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, John says, rest assured, you have eternal life. Now, are you our closer? Come on down. Come on. And remember, guys, this assurance is based on the witness or the testimony, the promise of God. And here's what I want you to see. The need, and we talk about this. We talk, I mean, John has been very repetitive and appropriately so to remind us all throughout this letter, the need to hear the message doesn't end when we embrace the gospel. John says that we benefit from it. We are assured by it over and over again as we continue to hear and embrace it. God is not a man that he should lie. If he said it, he'll do it. If he has spoken it, he'll make it good. 
Now he's given you his word. Believe it. And can I just say, believer, continue to believe it, and God will be glorified in your life. Amen? Let's take our hearts to him now. God, we thank you for the integrity, the reliability of your word. And I pray, God, that you would forgive us when we doubt or falter in our faith. And I pray, God, that you would increase our faith and help us to anchor your word in our hearts. And so we're here today and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're giving consideration to maybe some meditation upon what we've heard today. He who has the Son has life. And so that's the question I confront you with. Do you have the Son? Have you placed your faith for the salvation of your soul in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I'm inviting you to do that right here and right now. I'm encouraging you not to put it off another day, not to harden your heart, but open your heart, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ right here, right now. You'll be a new creation. Old things will pass away. All things will be made new. Clean slate, fresh start, born again. How's that sound? I don't know, maybe everybody here knows Jesus, loves Jesus, and if that's the case, that's awesome. But I never want to take that for granted. And so maybe you've played the church game, or maybe you, you just came today for whatever reason. Maybe you've been here for a, a while, or maybe it's your first time. But something's happening in your heart that's a little bit different today, and said, you know what, today is the day. Lord, I believe on you, I trust in you, and I'm asking you, make me new. And if that's, if that's the cry of your heart, I want to pray for you. So uh, would you just show me who you are? Would you raise your hand if, if that's you today? And uh, If I see it, I'll say it. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second here to say, you know what, man? I need my life, my heart to be in the hands of Jesus. And Father, I thank you so much, Lord, just for opening the door we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. <laughs> and I pray, God, now that the seed of your word has found the soil of our hearts, that it would establish its root. And, Father, bring forth fruit for your glory. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. And that you've made a way where there is no way. And so we give you praise, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Guys, why don't we rise to our feet?